Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points and we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us uh, this time in uh, Delhi. We've we're, uh, been tracking you around the world last week, Australia, this week, India. Hi, Adam. Hi, hi, Cam. So, before anything, actually, I wanted to uh, let everyone know about a live show that we are planning. I've mentioned this before, but wanted to do it again. So, the live recording of Ones and Twos is going to be in front of an audience in New York City uh, in just a few weeks. So, this is the first time we're doing any kind of event like this. And, look, we're both really excited about it, and we'd love to see some of our listeners there in person. The event takes place on October 25th. You can find info on how to get tickets in our episode notes. And look, even if you're not in New York, uh, you can still get tickets for a live stream that's going to be happening. So uh, you can tune in from wherever you are in the world. Okay, back to the regular scheduling here. So uh, the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about India, appropriately enough, since Adam is there. But first, we wanted to cover the story that's probably on everyone's minds. Uh, the data point here is $500 billion. That is the amount of money measured in U.S. dollars that British financial markets have lost just in the three weeks since Elizabeth Truss became prime minister. Britain's new prime minister, Liz Truss, is either a brave genius defying all these financial bulls, financiers and big money men, or she's just destroyed the British economy just three weeks after taking over from Boris Johnson. A lot of the turmoil has been concentrated in just the past week when Truss's chancellor of the Exchequer, that's basically her finance minister, announced the details of the new government's budget plans. The centerpiece there was a major tax cut for the country's highest earners. And then all sorts of panic ensued. The pound, Britain's currency, fell in value to historic lows, while at the same time, the interest rate on government debt increased. The Bank of England was forced into emergency action to purchase government bonds. The International Monetary Fund warned that Trust's plans were irresponsible. Commentators all over the world were speculating on, on whether this could be an international crisis of some kind. The comparisons are bleak. The predictions, dark. The economy set to plunge into a decline of historic proportions. It's easy to get lost in the details. And they're all very fast moving. But yeah, we thought we could zoom out to understand the broader stakes of what's going on here. So Adam, first, in terms of the personalities involved, is it fair to refer to Liz Truss and her finance minister, Kwasi Kwarteng, as economic ideologues? I know that Kwarteng in particular has academic training as an economic historian. I mean, how would you characterize his historical work? And, and how does that square with the economic program that they've unveiled here? Yeah, I think Truss and Kwarteng belong to the wing of the Tory party that does believe in the need to revive the party's 
ideological muscles, if you like, to adopt a less pragmatic, um, more ideas-driven, visionary kind of uh, approach to politics, essentially to revive the Thatcherite agenda of the 1980s. I think that's the the core idea, to, to be less compromising, Truss is on record as saying, you know, she doesn't care whether she's popular or not, to really drive what they see as a transformational vision of Britain. So to that extent, yes, ideologues in the neutral sense, right? So to the politics of ideas. And yeah, Quarting, I mean, Quarting was at Cambridge when I was there as a student. I'd kind of been racking my brains as to whether or not I may have taught him. Not as a graduate student, for sure, because he's an early modernist. But as a you know as a as a undergraduate economic historian interested in economics, um, Quateng isn't I think a technical economic historian. He's more a historian of ideas. He worked with Istvan Hont, the famous historian of political thought. So I think that's where he comes from. Probably more revealing about his politics of money is a book that he wrote called War and Gold. Um, he might be the closest thing that Britain has to a gold bug in politics, in the sense that he believes that. Gold-backed currencies constrain politics in the way that fiat money um, doesn't, right? Because gold-backed currencies constrain the amount of money printing you can do, to put it crudely. Um, and so, you know, periods of peace go hand in hand with periods of stable money and periods of war associated with instability. So, to all, you know, to all, in all of these ways, he's a man of ideas. He's published several books. Uh, and so, yes, I think there's a program here. I think it's fair to say. I mean, you, you, otherwise, you think they might have flinched at this point, but. They seem pretty committed to their vision. Well, you're leaving yourself vulnerable to take the blame if, if you're saying you might have taught him here. Uh, so, you know, probably... <laughs> oh, God. I told also... Probably better, <laughs> better. Better if you did not have him in class. So, yeah, I mean, in general here, I, in addition to being this acute crisis for Britain, I'm curious if this week's events represent kind of a broader paradigm shift that's underway in how international financial markets work. I mean, it just seemed to me not not so long ago, there was kind of an unlimited appetite for Western financial assets of all kinds. We were just in the pandemic and governments had no problem issuing loads of debt throughout that period. And if there is a paradigm shift underway, I mean, what exactly is responsible for it, Adam? I mean, is it the stronger US dollar that everyone's been talking about, including us? Yeah. So, I mean, you could say the bases were loaded in this case, you know, to use the kind of baseball uh, idea of like the game being poised at a, in, a, in a position such that, you know, very dramatic things could happen quite suddenly because immediately after taking office, Truss had, had announced the program of price limitation, right, to cap the energy bills of ordinary British consumers which was, again, it wasn't properly costed. And that's one of the things that outraged people about this mini budget. But that was estimated to cost £150 billion, pounds, about 5% of GDP. So three times more than this tax giveaway. There's something I think about this, the mini budget and the tax giveaway that really incensed people. I mean, it was not properly run. So Britain has an uh, independent auditor, if you like, a fiscal auditor the Office of Budget Responsibility, OBR, and, and it wasn't even given a look-in on the £45 billion giveaway that was announced um, in the mini-budget. I think that, that had a lot to do with triggering the market reaction, the sense that really there wasn't anything that this administration wouldn't stop at spending money on, because in a matter of weeks, essentially, they'd decided to give away about £200 billion. In general, bond markets all over the world are under pressure right now. And so that is, as it were, the argument that the trust people are actually offering right now to journalists. The markets are under pressure because of inflation. So if you're going to hold a bond, you really want to be offered a higher rate of interest to compensate you for the inflation. And that's 
I think more than a general shift away from bonds, it's the inflationary pressure and a response of the central banks to it, which is causing turmoil all over the world. Um, there is anxiety right now about the amount of liquidity, in other words, the lack of liquidity in the US Treasury market as well, because US interest rates are going up and they're going up. It's quite clear they're going up rapidly. In the British case, there's an additional technical factor which has contributed to the avalanche-like sell-off, which is that pension funds in the UK, of course, hold lots of government bonds. Uh, and it's really the government bond market that's been the driver of this crisis. And they hold lots of government bonds because you know they're, they're, they've got to provide for pensions for people 20 to 30 years from now. And so you take government bonds onto your books. They're very safe under normal circumstances. And rising interest rates are generally speaking good for pension fund portfolios because it means they're going to generate more revenue and so they need smaller numbers of um, assets on their books to generate the revenue necessary to pay the pensions in due course. But because they are profit making in these ones, these are private uh, pension funds, they had decided to hedge themselves against the possibility of interest rates falling. So rather than just being able to pocket the windfall of the interest rate increase, they actually found themselves needing to unwind a bunch of hedge deals, which covered them against the opposite eventuality. And those hedge deals come with margin calls. So you only pay for a portion of the insurance cover. And then in the event of the deal becoming less attractive, to stay in it, you need to offer up more collateral. So these are so-called margin calls. And those are what were triggering the sales of assets. So there is a specific discontent with the British government's actions. There is a general pressure in global bond markets as a result of inflation and interest rates going up. And there are these highly technical factors, which are really to do with very temporary adjustments in very large portfolios, which, however, have the possibility of inducing a kind of doom loop, because the more you sell, the more the price of the treasuries goes down, so the higher the interest rate rises, and the more collateral you're then required to post for these hedges, so then you have to sell more, and so on and so forth. And it was that which really then triggered the Bank of England's interaction earlier this week to try and stabilize that market. Okay, that was a very clear explanation. And it sounds like trust may not have known about that sort of last piece. Maybe most people didn't know about this kind of technical part. It's not even obvious the Bank of England mm. really fully appreciated it. And that is the worry right now with these interest rate increases. The phrase everyone uses is something's going to break. Mm. <laughs> and uh, it's like a stress test, you know, when they put pieces of metal or wood into those stress testing things and you can see them flexing either end of the the bar and at some point it begins to splinter and that's kind of the state of global financial markets right now yeah i guess we discover in this <laughs> these kinds of moments how rickety the whole edifice is then i and i guess that leads to my my next question because in general i wonder i mean what exactly is the nature of the crisis when a currency falls in a, in a developed economy like like Britain's. I mean, it, it it seems like the scale, the panic we've been seeing is is pretty separate from the kind of direct impact on on the real economy experienced by most people. I mean, you're right about that. I mean, Britain is a very open economy. It's not the United States, and so the falling exchange rate will hurt. It will hurt, you know, immediately in terms of the cost of practically everything in the supermarket. So there will be a quite direct effect there, but. You know, we're talking about a relatively modest currency movement. We're not talking about the 20, 30% fall over a matter of days. We're talking about a 10, 15% fall, which is very dramatic for a currency as significant as sterling, which is still a reserve currency, a minor reserve currency. 
but you're right. The panic is out of proportion to that. The panic is is huge because it affects the government bond market. And that is a big deal in any country because that is the foundation, right, of the flexibility of government finances. And it's a very big market. It's trillions of dollars worth even in the UK. And in the US, it's $24 trillion. Like this is a huge pool of assets in which practically anyone, one way or the other, principally by way of, say, the Social Security Fund or by means of a pension, is invested. And so that's the bit that's spasming. And in the British case, and this is what's really alarming, is that the currency movements appear to be closely associated with the spasms in the bond market. And that's something you really don't want to see. You would prefer those two things to be independent of each other. When they become coupled together, it begins to feel a little bit like an emerging market situation where investors are, in a sense, opting in or out of a country. And when they opt out of the government bonds, they exit altogether. And that's a, a worrying sign when that happens. And it can become self-reinforcing because as the currency falls, the bonds become less attractive to hold and so on and so forth. Um, yes, this is a panic in the financial system. It isn't, however, you know, this is not a panic of the highly speculative hedge fund variety, right? I mean, the thing that is flexing here and under huge pressure is the government bond market, which is as core as you could possibly have. It's very difficult to imagine a financial system that doesn't have one of those. And then piled on that are the pension funds. And where I think you could mount a critique is that the pension funds in question are private pension funds, which are trying to meet the objectives of private pension fund managers. And they're using these sophisticated derivative techniques to, to manage the risks, which they wouldn't need to do if they were a public pension fund in the same way. And so, yes, to that extent, we are talking about privatized pensions as being a driver. But if you'd asked the vast majority of people six months ago whether they thought that the privatized pension system was going to be a source of financial instability, not that many people would have put their hands up. But it's a real wake-up call for financial stability regulation worldwide. Okay, yeah. I mean, just to clarify here, I mean, it sounds like the currency fluctuations are, are something of a red herring. I mean, it, the real action is in the bond markets and these pension funds. And and the problem then is the fact that all of these things are, are linked to, have become linked together in ways that didn't necessarily need to be the case. I mean, the for the inflation target, the pound matters. That's a, a key issue mm. as well. So, yeah, I guess with investors losing faith in the pound, it seems like the central bank is either forced into accepting higher inflation on one hand or raising interest rates in such a way that would be kind of ruinous and, and would contradict the ostensible you know, fiscal goals of, of restored growth that the trust government has. So, yeah, uh, when you have those two kinds of choices, I mean, what should the central bank be doing in, in this kind of situation? So, I mean, the central bank, the Bank of England has an unchanged mandate, right, which is price stability. And its target is notionally 2% inflation. And Britain is closer to 10% right now. So it's going to pursue lower inflation. And that problem is made worse by the falling pound because of the higher import prices. But the Bank of England doesn't specifically target the pound. So the pound can just droop to wherever it needs to droop to. And then they will offset that by raising interest rates. And that will be bad for growth, but it doesn't necessarily conflict government policy as such, because the trust government doesn't appear to want growth driven by deficits. It literally wants them driven by tax cuts. The incentive effect is the key thing here. So they, I think, imagine a kind of austere growth model in which the budget is balanced, the growth impetus comes from the lower taxes on the higher income entrepreneurial group, 
And they don't actually seem to see anything wrong with higher interest rates. Indeed, they seem to think that that will be healthier because they think that interest rates at the zero bound encourage you know, speculative borrowing and all of that. So they appear to be just really bone-dry conservatives who will accept a model of growth and believe sufficiently in the model, in the incentives provided by lower taxes to justify all of this. The really binding constraint, this comes back to you know, our previous discussion, the really binding constraint here is financial stability. So that's what's really kicking in here. Between the balance between inflation and growth, there's a third thing which we desperately want to preserve, which is the stability of the financial system. And as interest rates are going up, to square the circle between the tax cuts and the inflation imperative, they are breaking bits of the financial system that no one had seen the fragility of. So now the Bank of England is having to contradict itself because it's promising effectively to raise interest rates while at the same time now pumping liquidity into the system by means of going back to quantitative easing. Of course, it isn't really quantitative easing because all they're really doing is easing the liquidity pressure or easing easing the margin call pressure on the pension system to be very, very specific. That sounds entirely plausible that they were expecting higher interest rates, but do you really think they were expecting highest interest rates as high as, as are now under discussion? It seems to be like they just didn't see that coming. Yeah, I mean, because 6% is where they think they're headed to in Britain is a, you know, the, the wealth of the, the British middle and upper middle class, the ups, in real estate's an obsession in Britain. And, um, you know, this is really going to hurt because you're talking about tripling of interest rates um, for many people. So when I was looking at the situation, I, I was wondering, I mean, would it be fair to say that economic policymakers in general these days now face a kind of trilemma, by which I mean, like, there's the labor market, there's financial assets, and then there's sovereign debt. And it seems that policymakers can only support two out of the three. They have to kind of choose one of them to let suffer. And if there is such a choice, would it be incoherent to choose the labor market and kind of the growth of the real economy on one hand and sovereign debt, you know, the bond markets on the other, you know, in the form of some kind of bond buying by the central bank and then just putting the squeeze on, on the currency and the associated financial markets. I mean, that is the program of the left um, to embrace fiscal dominance, to cauterize, to shield off whatever damage is done in the financial system, to impose controls on that, to necessarily have capital controls. I mean, that was the program of the Corbynites in particular. They were braced for a fight with the city over precisely a program like this. Of course, they weren't going to do tax giveaways for the rich. They were going to do targeted public investment, uh, investment in the welfare state and the health system. And they had a whole game plan. They, in fact, wargamed this entire scenario for years. They had plans to move the institutions of economic governance in the UK uh, out of London, symbolically, to remove them from the influence of the city uh, of London, you know, the, the banking hub. They had plans to change the mandate of the Bank of England. So absolutely, that was the plan to make growth, the priority of government spending, put them at the top of the agenda, and if necessary, discipline the, the financial sector such that they could not be a, an obstacle. But, but when Corbyn went down to catastrophic defeat, right, the, that changed the entire game. And the current Labour leadership has decided that the best tactic is to differentiate themselves from the Tories by, you know, positioning themselves as the sound money Labour Party, you know, to trump the Tories in the economic competences stake. So rather than embracing fiscal dominance to, you know, embrace the logic of the city. Um, um, and this is personally my objection to piggybacking on the 
criticism of, you know, much mainstream criticism of the current Tory government is that you end up de facto in so doing, you know, using the arguments that I know, Janet Yellen or Larry Summers or the IMF have made against the current government, you end up de facto endorsing the primacy of the financial logic. I mean, if the trust government was pursuing a transformative social agenda, you know, they would have my sympathy. <laughs> but of course they aren't. And that's not the kind of politics that, that they would ever dream of pursuing. But that absolutely was the priority of the Corbyn winning of the Labour Party. And it was, you know, the Green New Deal had a similar kind of aspect in the United States. Finally, I've seen a fair number of conservative commentators in Britain refer to the financial market reaction here as irrational. But then these are the same types, as far as I know, that otherwise refer to markets as the wisdom of the masses, you know, with financial prices representing some underlying truth that needs to be recognized. So is this a blind spot in conservative free market thinking? And which of these two opposing views is is closer to the truth in your eyes, Adam? Yeah, this is among the more remarkable aspects of the the current moment, actually, the the alienation between the Tory party, which you would think of as you know, the bastion of business interest in British politics and economic experts in the City of London. Uh, and it's two-sided because, you know, and you think about it, it's quite surprising the way the city reacted to this mini-budget because you'd think they'd be cheering for tax cuts for the rich, right? Because they will benefit. And instead, they've, you know, unleashed this huge crisis. And uh, the Tories, for their part, are responding in kind, right? I mean, they just refuse all of the outriders of Trust and Quarte, all of their proxies in the media are just countering the city line and they're saying you know offering a whole variety of different explanations for what's going on including the farcical idea that the value of the pound and the bond market are convulsing because they they fear a labor government <laughs> so it's a kind of rather circular logic by which you know if we do something scary and stupid that makes the labor party more likely to win then we'll blame the city for panicking at the prospects of them winning and at this point the labor party I saw a poll this evening has a 32-point lead over the Tories, which is the largest on record. And in the British system, that would mean a almost complete annihilation in Parliament if that were actually to come to pass. So it's it's quite dramatic. It points to this deep structural break that goes back to 2016 and to the Brexit referendum, where the Brexit wing of the... I mean, it was a Conservative government that called the referendum under Cameron, expecting to win for Remain, right? So the Tory party, the mainstream of the Tory party was Remain because it's clearly better for British business to be in the EU. And around the Prime Minister and the Liberal Party and the Labour Party who all campaigned together for Remain, there was a mobilisation of both global and national you know, expert opinion in favour of staying within the EU. And of course, it was the, the Brexiteers that won narrowly, but they won. And, and ever since the Brexit wing of the Tory party and the UKIP party, Nigel Farage, all of those people, have been in this sort of boisterous refusal of economic gravity kind of mode. They speak about buccaneering and adventuring Britain that's going to sail out into the world. And Boris Johnson famously used an expletive to refer to, to business, um, which again is unheard of in a, you know, a serious uh, conservative politician. And, and interestingly, you know, there are parallels of this in the US as well, right? There is, after all, not exactly congruence between the Trump wing of the GOP and the American business community, the business leadership either. I mean, it's uh, there's a huge gap increasingly between big corporate leadership in the US and the GOP. So this is a structural uh, feature of, of modern politics. A populist right is unaligned with business. The striking thing about trust and quartering is you wouldn't necessarily think of them as simply populist because they're kind of 
elite conservatives. So it's really strange. It, it's not so much populism, I think, as a kind of a kind of cosplay Thatcherism. And the city's just calling their bluff and saying, look, we're not kidding around. This is not a pantomime. If you do this, it will not actually add up. And we cannot at that level, you know, we can't hold the pound and we can't we can't hold the US Treasury in paper at the kind of interest rates you're offering. Wake up, smell the coffee, get real. Um, so it's a it's a very weird, slightly spooky configuration in which the political pieces no longer align with the social interests in the way that you might once have thought they would. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm surprised because, yeah, I, I, most of the financial commentary doesn't seem to take this next step that you're taking, which is, it almost seems that this set of policies is the only way to make sense of Brexit. In other words, this is like, almost like the logical kind of like, if you're going to do Brexit, you might as well go and do this. And at this point, because otherwise, what was the point of, of Brexit? Yeah, because otherwise, the sensible thing to do after Brexit is to unwind Brexit as quietly as you possibly can. Sure. Right. And just settle for some lesser version of EU membership. And no, and the, I think that's right. I mean, I think these people actually want to kind of live the dream. Um, Either this or the Corbyn variety. I mean, it seems like those are the coherent responses. If you're going to do Brexit, you might as well either go Truss or Corbyn. But we do need to leave it there for now. Uh, if this blows up, we'll be talking about it again, I'm sure. But anyway, we'll be right back to talk about India. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents. And I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. So our next data point is seven, as in 
which is the growth rate in India this year. India published some key economic data today, including the GDP numbers. They reflect the growing consensus about the Indian economy. Better than the world, yet facing challenges. And with all the problems around the world, including in Britain that we just talked about, India has been a kind of bright spot. And Adam, you've had a front row seat this past week, so we thought we'd take a closer look at what exactly is going on there. So yeah, Adam, it had become something of a, of a cliche to pair China and India when discussing the future of the world economy, the, the future world powers in the East. But there's also a sense that its economy has never quite taken off the way China's did, between, especially between 1980 and 2010. So yeah, why did it kind of hit that wall? I mean, what's held it back? Is it democracy in India as opposed to China's political system? Is it India's populist government right now? What exactly has been the issue? Yeah, it, well, it's tempting to say that colonialism didn't help. I mean, the, uh, mm. the British track record of rule in India left a lamentably sparse legacy of um, educational infrastructure, of health spending, actually of transport infrastructure too, though the British like to boast of the integration they brought by means of railways, which remain a, a backbone of, of India's uh, economy. Um, but, you know, it's also worth, of course, saying that China's position was hardly favorable in, um, you know, 1949, um, when the communists took over either. Uh, and in the early 1960s, both were at very similar levels, for instance, of life expectancy or our best measures of GDP per capita. Um, and to be honest, uh, this question, I mean, I was literally sitting in my hotel room this afternoon thinking, you know, why does anyone focus on any other question? This this question of why these two giant countries, each of them has about a sixth of the world's population, um, have diverged to the extent that they have, you know, it seems to me, I mean, I, I it just, it's a complete preoccupation for me right now. Um, and it is very dramatic. I mean, A, it's important to say that no country, no economy has ever grown the way the Chinese have. So to compare the Indians to China is a rather unfair to to the to the Indians. I mean, you could say you could say South Korea has grown very, very rapidly as well. So there's an exceptional group of just super rapid developing East Asian economies to which India is compared. Um, but you can only go so far with the apologetics because the results are spectacularly different. If you spend any time at all in Beijing and Delhi and compare the two, it's just worlds apart. And it and it this is not a matter of abstract numbers this is a matter of people's livelihoods and you know the just extreme poverty which still haunts very substantial parts of the indian population and to which there really is no counterpart in china anymore and just a kind of um exposure particularly of vulnerable people of women and children to extreme poverty in in india uh, in a form that you just don't see in china so it's it's a very dramatic question that affects you know all told what about a third of humanity um, so it's it's a it's a it's a really fundamental issue, and I can't say that I I you know have fully wrapped my head around it, but the the numbers are very impressive. Like so, in 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 the nineteen sixties, life expectancy in China and India was you know kind of level pegging, and then in the period, and this is kind of the puzzle, right? In the period of the Cultural Revolution, when we think of China as going through absolutely massive and destructive upheaval, the life expectancy surges. And by the early 1980s, when the World Bank first gets access to China, what they see in China is a poor country, still low GDP per capita, not much higher than India's, 
but poised for growth because China by the early 1980s has universal uh, elementary education enrollment and life expectancy numbers and health provision, which are more like those of a lower, lower income advanced economy. So comparable to, say, the provision in Italy. Um, by the early 1980s. So really remarkable contrast. And there's something, and you talk to Indian specialists, they come back to this point again and again, it's something to do with state capacity, something to do with infrastructural capacity. And the drama of India in the last couple of decades is that India is beginning to build that deep infrastructural state capacity that allows the government to get key services down to absolutely everyone in this immense and incredibly diverse society. Um, and so it, in a really weird way, in a way that's really taken me aback several times with, you know, centrist policy people, not leftists now, which, of course, India has a proud tradition, you know, the subaltern studies school and so on. But they they converge with on this question of how much difference did it make that India did not have a genuine social revolution at the moment of independence from Britain, right? And that the nationalist movement for all of the popular mobilization that Gandhi and his and his cohorts made possible, always shied away from unleashing the full force of a popular revolution that would have genuinely upheaved the social structure and transformed it, might have challenged the caste system in a direct way. None of that happened, right? So instead, India transitions out of the colonial rule, which was so oppressive in many ways and, and unproductive in many ways, into independence, um, but without that radical transformation. And I think if you're looking for deep answers to this question, um, you end up in places like that. And what that explains then is this lack of infrastructural capacity, this lack of ordering capacity, and ultimately then things like the lack of investment, which is just lower in, in India, the lack of spending on education, which is lower than in China, the lack of spending on health, which is lower than in China. And so the short answer is, you know, India's never going to be China. Um, that isn't happening. The question really is whether I think India can part, you know, charter its own independent development path it's very unlikely to fall back into what used to be known as the Hindu rate of growth, whether it can sustain 7%, which is very, very rapid by historic standards. That in itself would be a huge, huge achievement because it would mean that GDP doubled every 10 years. And so every 20 years, it would quadruple. And that would take India to middle income status in the next 20 years. So to jump to the present, I mean, uh, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been in office for a while and you know he he's promised a kind of ideological transformation of the country in general he's often referred to as a hindu nationalist but he also ran on an ambitious economic platform to remake the indian economy so how is his record uh, what kind of policymaker has he been and has he kept his his promises yeah, I mean, Modi's a figure of legend at this point. I mean, he's an absolutely remarkable politician. He is undoubtedly, you know, the figurehead of a of a Hindu nationalist politics that traces its roots and still cooperates and is, you know, supercharged by the RSS, which is the extreme nationalist uh, wing of uh, of, um, of the Hindu and Hindutva movement. Um, and it is uh, intolerantly majoritarian, which, which in the Indian case is, is explosive because of the very large Muslim population in the country. And um, liberal academics who are critical of the BJP feel the pressure of, of the regime as a result. And, and people talk about it as a regime. And if you spend much time in Delhi, it feels like that, right? So the poster, the prime minister is all over the place. 
There are stadiums named after the living prime minister. There is something of a personality cult around Modi. It's, it's quite striking. And I think there's two sides to the, maybe three sides to the policy, right? There are the complex, high-level reforms which the government has pushed through, you know, um, at the level, for instance, of opening the markets up to foreign investment in various ways, trying to pass well, factor market reforms so as to enable more buying and selling of lands and uh, deregulating uh, labour. There is the so this is a, you might say a kind of almost neoliberal development agenda, and then there is um, the reality of BJP Modiist. Um, crony capitalism, essentially, uh, with a series of networks that link the prime minister to key Indian business interests. And it's a way of doing politics, a way of doing business. Erdogan functions in a similar way. Putin functions in a similar way. You could say, after all, that American political parties do too. You pick your groups of business and capital that you work with closely and use them as bulldozers and pioneers of large-scale investment, large-scale infrastructure development, which has also happened in India. But the most impressive thing, I think, especially viewing this as a historian and somebody you know, steeped in 19th and 20th century European history, is that the really dramatic thing that you see going on in India over the last 20 years, but really accelerated under Modi, because this is part of the BJP agenda, is the creation of a nation in real time, right? Because India is so massive and so hugely diverse, and it's a federal state, right? And the federal units of India are the size of Mexico or Canada, you know, they're gigantic, huge populations. And these are bolted together in this fragile federal structure. And for instance, they didn't have a single internal tax system until they introduced this GST. And as trucks would cross, I've witnessed this, you know, if they cross the boundaries between Indian states, they stop. It's like they pay a toll um, like they used to in Germany in the 19th century. And so in the last 10 to 15 years, what Delhi has begun to do is to roll out a truly comprehensive set of national programs which tie ordinary Indians, hundreds of millions of peasants, into a national identification system, the national financial system, the national cell phone system. Then you can pile all those three things together. They've got this highly advanced electronic identification system. Um, link that to people's cell phones, which practically there's like 1.2 billion cell phone licenses in in uh, in India, so practically everyone has access to one. And all of a sudden, you've got the mechanism for delivering welfare payments to literally everybody in India at the flick of a switch. And I've met the bureaucrats who do this, and it's an incredibly impressive electronically-based welfare system. On the one hand, and then you've also got a campaign for clean water or a campaign for indoor toilets so that every you know there should be no more outdoor defecation in India, which is one of the curses of urban life in India until recently. Um, or you should have national electrification. So aside from the sort of you know tidy-minded neoliberal reforms and the cronyism, there's also this much more kind of foundational effort to fully integrate all Indians into the national economy and national society. And that's what really gives Modi and the BJP their heft. It also raises the question of whether those who are not Hindu are getting left behind in some way. I don't know if that's legible in, in the data either. It's not just legible in the data. It's uh, eerie for a European to take a taxi, you know, take a tuk-tuk ride around around Delhi and your tuk-tuk driver will literally point out that's where Muslims live. Hmm. And he'll point to, you know, what to, to my eyes looks like an overcrowded ghetto, you know, buildings piled six, seven, seven, eight stories high. Now, of course, there's a lot of informal building in Delhi altogether. So your imagination gets, you know, a little supercharged at the site, but everyone in this town 
knows where the lines of segregation are drawn and it's increasing and, and the Muslims live in those sectors because it's increasingly difficult for them to get rental uh, uh, accommodation in the city. Um, landlords will not let to people with Muslim, with Muslim family names. Hmm. So to look at the composition of the economy a bit more specifically, where does manufacturing fit in into the scheme of things for India's economy? I know the label made in India doesn't kind of strike a chord as much as made in China does. So did India just kind of miss the boat when it comes to manufacturing or did it end up just jumping straight to services? This is a crucial question when you do the India-China comparison. So, you know, the bulk of labor when we start the comparison in the 60s, 70s, 80s is in, ag- is in agriculture. And, and uh, China has a head start there in terms of use of fertilizer and investment and everything else. But then the really big difference that opens up between the two economies is that China from the 80s onwards begins to develop as a key hub for global manufacturing with investment by Western companies, by Japanese, South Korean, Taiwanese companies all go into China, obviously, and make it the big factory really of the world. And A, you could say India doesn't do that, or B, and much more forcefully, you could say because China does it, right? It, it occupies the space that India could have been in. And India misses the opportunity as globalization really begins in earnest in its modern form in the 1990s to be in that space. India at that point is coming out of its financial crisis of 1991, is, is liberalizing rapidly, but is well behind China at that point and misses the misses the the chance but the sector which workers went into over, overwhelmingly migrant male workers was was construction so as the city population of of india has has boomed all of the extra population really in the last decades has has ended up agglomerating in the cities and as in china that has required a huge construction process it doesn't quite doesn't track the headlines the way the chinese urbanization does but this has been a massive source of employment for rural to urban migrants in in, in India. The, the real contrast that hurts, and people don't really enjoy it when you bring it up, is Bangladesh. Because as China has developed, China is no longer a low-cost um, manufacturing hub, right? China is now a, a medium to high-cost manufacturing hub. It only really competes in the world now, like Europe does or the US, on the basis of productivity and wages, which make a favorable combination still for many sectors in China. But in, gar- in the garment industry and textiles, they don't anymore. And so the question really is, as China developed, who moved into the slots beneath? Vietnam is, is one country which has very effectively moved into that space. And Bangladesh has. And Bangladesh now is you know, a world leader in, uh, in textiles and in garment production in particular. And that, of course, is, is, you know, is India's close neighbor, is as culturally proximate as formerly part of the British Empire of India and separated by way of Pakistan and then the partition of Pakistan, right? Bangladesh is very close to India in every sense of the word. Um, it re- the question is really nagging as to why that didn't happen in India. And the answers seem to be to do with regulation, that it was just easier to build bigger businesses, to employ labor, particularly female labor in, in Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh is overwhelmingly Muslim, um, Muslim is, uh, women work much more outside the home in India as well uh, than Hindu women do. Um, but in Bangladesh, the mobilization of female labor has been much easier. Yeah, I mean, to look at the economy from a very different perspective, I wanted to finish by asking about the remarkable number of CEOs of major international companies that are run by Indians and Indian immigrants. I mean, 
what, if anything, exactly accounts for that success at corporate leadership? And is it telling in some way that these CEOs tend not to be the founders of the companies that they're leading and that these companies are often not in India themselves? Yeah, so by one list I found online, it was Google, Microsoft, Adobe, Twitter, IBM, Chanel, Bata, and the list goes on. I mean, it mm. is an incredible list. I, I mean, it has, you know, certain obvious common denominators. Tech features very high prominently there. Um, all told, apparently, 60 of the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies are of Indian origin. So first of all, you think, wow, that's a lot. And then you think, well, how many Indians are there? And like one-sixth of humanity is Indian. So, you know, that's broadly one-sixth of the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies. So, I mean, wake up, smell the coffee. This is the world, right? The other 60 ought to be Chinese, and then the rest would be the rest, right? I mean, so there are just a lot of Indians, <laughs> and uh, um, their education system at the elite level is absolutely competitive with anywhere in the world, right? I mean, um, Perhaps not the universities in India itself, but they have a pipeline of people who then make it out into the absolutely top tier of the Western universities, which are the entry tickets to those kind of jobs. And they have huge, you know, you, one would have to say cultures, right, of, of uh, in math, for instance, in mathematics. I mean, in, like the Indians have a claim to have invented it, right, maths. Um, in the form that, that we know it, certainly that Western Asian combination of India and the Arab world between them invented it. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, we should, we shouldn't, I don't think we should be surprised. I, you know, I think, I think we should see this like the, you know, the story of the rise of Asia in general as more like a readjustment of the world to the reality of the huge preponderance of these giant Asian societies in the human story. This is what the world should look like generally. I mean, the fact that these are American companies is testament to the openness and, of, of American society to talent. I don't think there's anything, there's no doubt about that. It's not as though European companies, for instance, have that same sort of share. And it's a sign of just the extremely, you know, high performance and um, the educational values of that migrant population. Um, so essentially, you could think of this, this group, this elite group, as, as just part of that kind of you know, cosmopolitan melting pot that's created by the elite Anglophone university system and college system um, and the ecosystems of tech in particular, which have, you know, dug such deep roots in, in India. The Anglophone part of that seems to me pretty critical because, yeah, obviously China doesn't have that advantage and maybe that accounts for part of the reason we don't see as many Chinese CEOs in the US or elsewhere in the West. But in any case, we do need to leave it here for now. I do want to thank Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief, for some of uh, his pointers on some of these questions as I was getting ready for this. But we will leave it there for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Tews, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. 
And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.